Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chuck. My guest today is Anand Girdardas, the author of the new book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It's a book about his travels in the world of the international elite and how he believes they have convinced themselves that they are changing the world for the better with philanthropy and by pushing public policy they deem to be altruistic. But, he argues, they are merely helping entrench a system where elites gain more and more power while the poor and middle classes have less and less power. Moreover, it's a society that becomes ever more reliant on the goodwill of several rich people with all kinds of bad consequences. Girdardras was formerly a reporter and writer for the New York Times, and he also now teaches journalism at NYU. He joins me now from Slate Studios in Washington, D.C. Anand, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So why don't you, for people who haven't read it, uh, probably do not have a copy yet, why don't you just lay out a little bit what the thesis of the book is, and then we can kind of go from there. The book argues that we live in this extraordinary age in America, and the book is focused on America, in which rich people and plutocrats are generous by every measure, give a lot of money back. Every young elite, young graduate wants to change the world, wants to do good, wants to help out. And yet, we live also in an era that has been absolutely punishing for, you know, a vast, perhaps the majority of Americans. We live in an era in which, you know, since 1979, the bottom half of Americans, about 117 million people, have seen their incomes rise from $16,000 to $16,200 over the last 39 years of innovation and growth and transformation of the world order. Whereas those in the, you know, top 1% and 0.01% 001% have seen their incomes, you know, double, triple, multiply by however many X. And so I, you know, began to be interested in how these two facts sit side by side. How is it that we live in this age in which Mark Zuckerberg and every other Silicon Valley person is claiming to change the world and in which, you know, every finance person in New York is involved in giving back why do we live in such a generous age that has also been such a cruel age? And the argument of the book is that these things are not a coincidence, um, that giving has become the wingman of taking, and generosity has become the wingman of injustice, and changing the world has become the wingman of keeping the world fundamentally the same and keeping the winners on top. So what would be a, what would, what would be a specific example of that in the way that you think that giving, you know, is the wingman of injustice. When elites, particularly from the business world, um, when the winners of our of our rather extreme form of market capitalism um, move into and even conquer the arena of social change, they put their thumb on the scale and favor forms of change that don't threaten them and kind of discourage and shame forms of change that would hurt them. So you can pick any issue and we can think about what would be a thoroughgoing change that might be a little painful for winners and what would be a kind of light facsimile of change that would uh, be fine with them. So if you think about empowering women, I mean, everybody, well, most people in theory think that's a good idea. Um, if you look at other societies that have made strides in that direction, it's pretty clear that it takes a lot of policy, an expensive policy, frankly, to make that work. Maternity leave, uh, family leave, universal 
childcare or childcare tax credits, real social policies that actually make it possible, um, that lift the numbers and make it possible for um, women and families to play their multiple roles in life. Um, well, all those things I just outlined are, are pretty expensive for winners, billions of dollars in costs and taxes and companies having to, to spend more money or have uh, more complex workforce issues. And so instead of ignoring the clamor of women for empowerment, um, what the plutocrats and kind of elite charadists do is put forward an alternative form, a light facsimile of women's empowerment that is like lean-in circles, right? Let's just get women together. They'll mentor each other. They'll lean in. They'll raise their hand more. The advantage of this kind of change, although it's not real change, is that it doesn't cost the winners anything. The powerful don't have to concede an inch. Um, it's a win-win. And win-win becomes a very important word in this framework. Change that benefits the left behind without costing those in power anything. If you switch to an issue like education, where a lot of plutocrats do a lot of work and are very interested in making public, edu public education better, um, they tend to gravita gravitate toward things like charter schools. Uh, charter schools are a way of, of working on the public education problem that doesn't hurt winners. You divert some money from the public school system to a private school that you essentially um, advise, maybe sit on the board of. And it doesn't hurt you in any way. You, you're giving back. You're helping some kids have better opportunity. And, you know, you're probably making some difference in those kids' lives. However, um, if you think about a real change like equalizing public funding, uh, public school funding across this country, uh, ending the manifest injustice of the fact that we fund public schools according to how expensive your parents' home is, well, that's the kind of thing that would, that would hurt the winners. That's the kind of thing that would make, you know, home prices in Marin and Greenwich uh, fall. That's the kind of thing that would make public schools in those places, you know, perhaps fall to the level of the mean. And that's the kind of change that the winners can't believe in. Um, and so in, in the arena in which they pursue and push and lead change, those kinds of changes fall by the wayside. And so what would be your advice if, if you were um, advising a, a billionaire on what to... Uh what to do to uh, be socially active, to try to make a better world. Um, what, what, you know, what, what practical advice would you give? Well, first of all, I think the more important practical advice, and the reason I wrote Winners Take All, is to advise not the billionaires, but uh, the rest of us who I think passively assent to the billionaire's conquest of social change and slightly buy into Mark Zuckerberg's theory that he's a liberator of man and slightly um, kind of accept people who might have caused social problems at, at New York investment banks reinventing themselves as warriors against inequality when they go to a couple galas. Um, and so my primary audience for this book is for the rest of us to stop treating billionaires as change agents and to recognize them as people who are trying to, you know, take care of themselves and to stop outsourcing change making to them. Um, but I think to your question, um, I also attempt to speak um, to those who, you know, frankly, I think in a, in a more fair America, um, billionaires would have less money to give. But we're not, we're not there yet. We're not there now. And so there is money sitting around. And it could be spent on a yacht or it could be spent helping people. And I think there are better and worse ways to help people. And the simple rubric I use is, you know, is the giving you're doing shoring up 
or breaking down the system atop which you stand. Um, if that system is not fair, to that extent that it's not fair, are you eroding it? Or are you simply nibbling at the edges? One of the one of the sort of frequent themes of the book is that many of the people that you're writing about, the rich people who are keeping this these systems in place and perpetuating these problems, you present them as extremely sincere. The portraits in your book are not of people who are basically trying to make a fast one and, uh, you know, pretend that they're giving but not really giving or, you know, make people think they're nice but they're not nice. These are people who, at least my reading of your portraits, is really do sincerely want to make change, but because of either psychological reasons or because of just the way they've been sort of, or because of the way they kind of just think about the world, their mode of making change is in a way that perpetuates their role at the top of the system. Well, I mean, I think... It's, you know, there's this line from, from Paulo Freire that I love, which is, you know, he talks about something slightly similar to what I, what I write about. He calls these kinds of gestures of, you know, elite help aspirin practices. Uh, and if you think about kind of giving someone who has cancer aspirin, uh, on one level you're helping, another level you may be masking and, you know, preventing the, the, the fullness of the problem from being detected. Um, and he says, you know, aspirin practices bring together the naive and the shrewd. Um, and I really love that phrase because I think it captures what I'm describing. I am describing a complex of people, of the winners of our age of market fundamentalism, who combine, you know, the, the, there are both the naive and the shrewd among them. Um, to stereotype a little bit, you know, I, I think if you think about the Wall Street finance types who, you know, speculate wildly and and make a bunch of money and and give a little back to the Robin Hood Foundation gala. Um, my general experience of folks like that is that they are they are certainly motivated by money. Um, there is you know greed is an important factor, and they often quite pragmatically recognize that a certain amount of giving of uh, giving you know equipped with a with a good publicist to let people know about it is an essential component of a strategy of continued taking. That's the shrewd part of the equation. Um, and then I think, you know, if when I go to Silicon Valley um, and I spend time with, you know, people at Facebook and Google and places like this, um, it often feels very different from that. It feels closer to the naive side. I think you have a lot of sincerity about making the world a better place. I think you often have in these companies people who are truly motivated in the way that, you know, a Gandhi or a Mao was, and the the spectrum of morality there is what should give us pause, who really think they are doing the best for humanity, um, but who do not see, therefore, the ways in which that story may break down, do not see the dangers of their own monopoly, do not see that they are powerful and that power needs to be kept in check, do not understand the importance of accountability. I think a lot of the naive idealists um, are in some ways more dangerous because they so deeply believe that they're making the world a better place simply by doing what they do, that they view any kind of pushback, whether it's by a regulator or a journalist or anyone else, as slowing them down from their mission of emancipating people. And they look at you as though, why are you trying to stop me from emancipating hu humankind as fast as I can? I, I don't disagree with that. I, uh, I've lived in the Bay Area now since I moved back for from the East Coast for about three and a half, almost four years. And 
that was definitely my feeling in my early time here. I've gotten slightly more cynical about it and think that in some way that also that that sort of what you what you put forward may also in a way be a cover for more simple notions of greed. I'm just wondering if your idea of the tech world has changed at all based on what we've seen in the last year or 18 months. Well, I I think the world's view of the tech world has changed in the last 18 months. And and that's very good. You know, I, I, I think you may be right. And by the way, the tech world, there's a lot of different types of yes, players. Yes, in it. I, th- I think you're general. certainly right about the VCs. And I mean, there's definitely many people motivated by money. And I think there's many smaller players motivated by money. I'm thinking about the really big, you know, I think the Google people and the Facebook, the really big companies that are in some ways the most dangerous, I think are also, and this may be just naive on my part, but I think are motivated often by these very large civilizational missions. Um, But I don't say that to exonerate them in any way. Um, I actually think our society is much better equipped to keep in check somewhat greedy people who, you know, just want to make a buck. I think we have a pretty advanced regulatory infrastructure to deal with those people, Um, which is why, you know, we have an SEC and which is why car seats are safe and which, you know, like in general, when you're an operating business person, like if, if, if you're trying to, you know, pull a fast one by the society, the society is actually not defenseless against that. We have developed quite a bit of wisdom around what to do about someone like that. We don't have an SEC for the tech world. We don't really regulate much of it at all. We don't, I mean, I don't think there's been a single antitrust case against any of these big tech platforms. We're a little defenseless against them. And partly it's because they raise new issues, but I mean, they've been raising new issues for 20 years. Um, I think a lot of it is that we buy into some of their story um, in this passive way, that they are somehow different from the Goldman Sachs of the world. And I think they are different, but I think also the the level of power some of these companies have accumulated over human discourse and activity and commerce and and consciousness is frankly to me so much more scary than the power that you know Carnegie and J.P. Morgan had a hundred years ago. I mean, I, I, I'm not to, not minimizing the importance of you know steel and banking and 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 oil monopolies, but a monopoly on you know people's maintenance of their social networks and how many people get information um, and and you know a, an, an app that actually has addictive uh, power over millions of people in multiple countries and is their primary you know platform for talking about politics seems to me a level of um, level of power that is way way more menacing Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One character in your book is Bill Clinton, who I think in a lot of people's minds now sort of represents sort of the the world of think tanks and uh, the speaking circuit and uh, international sort of traveling around and giving speeches for lots of money and uh, hanging out with other rich people and getting them to give pledges to give money. Uh, what did you make of him and how did how going in was your opinion changed by by the book, if it was? 
so what I did was I actually spent two days at the final CGI, the Clinton Global Initiative that he had in uh, September 2016. And it was a very interesting moment because it was a couple months after Brexit had happened. And so the global you know, elite had received one big blow to their to their worldview and their sense of understanding of what was going on. Um, and they were two months away from receiving another one with the election of Donald Trump and, of course, the defeat of President Clinton's wife, Hillary Clinton. So he was deeply invested in that moment in the idea that this populism thing was um, – you know, to be was a was this thing to be defeated, but was really narrow and 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 based on fooling people, etc. Um, there was a lot of kind of talking down of of this populism thing at that CGI. So I spent two days there and reporting it and reported on panels and was curious about how in that world rich people are presented as the only people able to actually affect change these days, and government is sort of passively denigrated, including by President Clinton himself, who said in his final speech, um, you know, this is all that works in the modern world, i.e. plutocrats working with government and others in these like private, unaccountable, invisible projects to make the world better. Um, after that, I decided to reach out and see if I could engage with him one-on-one. -on -one. And so I reached out to his team. And I basically said, you know, what fascinated me, which is, if you go back to 1964, when he's at Georgetown as an undergraduate, it was hard to think about anybody who believed more deeply than he did in 1964 um, in the idea that you use the power of government and the law to change the world, right? He was all in on that idea. He was enraptured by Lyndon Johnson. He decided to make his life in politics. He went back to Arkansas. He, he you know, had a, a career that now we all know. And now if you think flash forward to 2016 or 2017 when I spoke to him, it's hard to think about anybody in the world who now more deeply believes in this alternate theory of how you change the world that has since taken hold, which is that you change it by, you know, through partnerships among plutocrats and other, you know, Goldman Sachs doing a project with McDonald's and McKinsey and, and some local agency and others to make the world better. And so I wanted to understand how he got from A to B. And we had, you know, probably a 90 minute, 90 minute session together. Um, and, you know, he is, he is brilliant as always. Um, and he had an answer for everything. Feels like there's a butt coming. There is. But one of the things that really struck me, um, we probably met about five or six months after Hillary Clinton's defeat. Um, and it struck me that, in, that there was a defensiveness around, you know, these people didn't understand what they're doing. Um, it struck me that there was an inability to say, you know, in retrospect, um, the two of them having made, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars, according to the Wall Street Journal, um, in their post-presidential life, in retrospect may have been a bad move in an age of rising populism, right? There was no ability to say, you know, a lot of the form this anger is taking is bad, but some of the impulses behind this anger of feeling the game is rigged um, are real. And a lot of the people that I've brought into this CGI sphere are part of the problem. He, he just couldn't go there because these are his people now. And we had a particularly revealing exchange, which I relay in the book, 
about soft drink companies. One of the things he'd done and sort of his signature kind of post-presidential work, he'd worked on the childhood obesity issue. And he'd gotten interested in this because of his own heart trouble. And I think someone had asked him to you know, work on this issue of childhood obesity and the soft drink companies having these vending machines in public schools and what could be done. And so he'd come together and he'd, you know, in his typical fashion, it's about coming together. It's about working with the the schools and the companies and they'd made smaller cans and they'd, you know, done a few different things. So I said to him, you know, Mr. President, this seems as clear a case to me as any could be of a place where government is a legitimate actor. I'm not sure why you need to work with the soft drink companies to make smaller cans. You have products that have no redeeming nutritional value for children. You have a problem of childhood obesity that you're trying to solve. You have children who cannot vote and cannot easily organize to thwart the power of these products, which you know have addictive qualities. Um, this seems as clear a case for using political action and collective action to say, no, companies, well-connected private companies trying to make a buck cannot, you know, get their vending machines into our kids' schools. Why wouldn't you as a former president lead a movement, fight lawsuits, like use the organs of public power to do that? And he said, no, well, that doesn't really work because you got to make sure the companies have a business model. And if you don't help them continue that they're, you know, continue making money after you fix this, it's not going to work. And I just thought that was such an astonishing moment. Um, a man who had actually run the most powerful machinery of state in human history saying, no, like, we can't use that machinery of state to protect children from harmful products. Uh, we have to make sure the companies have a business model on the other side. And part of what I'm trying to interrogate in the book is when did we start to believe, when did many of us start to believe that social change must be congenial to those profiting from the status quo? Because if I think if you took that mentality and projected it back through history, a lot of history wouldn't have been made. At one point you write, there's, quote, there's almost no problem probed in this book, no myth, no cloud of self-serving justification that I haven't found a way of being part of. This is a critique of a system of which I am absolutely undeniably a part. Um, you know, the book, your, your bio mentions that you do TED Talks, you have a blurb from Bill Gates. So I guess what I'm curious is, what is it? I, I think part of you is acknowledging that there's something very appealing about this world, um, not just the fact that, you know, it's journalists who want to be a part of this world. It's important for our careers. But but what is it that's so appealing about this world? And do you think in some ways maybe your attraction to it has helped you write about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's many different things. But But, you know, I think if you are a writer and thinker, that's kind of one subset of people. You know, I think we we can't talk about this without talking about what's happened in many of the other arenas where writers and thinkers made their bread and butter and and got their work out, right? If you think about the newspaper world, the newsrooms, you know, lost 40% of their staff over the last, you know, couple decades. If you think about academia, and we all know about the, you know, the rise of adjuncts and basically that opportunity to make a living has been hugely gutted and you know people people being paid like 1800 bucks a semester to teach um, if you think about um, the world of book publishing you know advances and 
print runs are smaller. There's like one major big bookstore left. And so that mode of making a living, getting ideas out there uh, has become smaller. And so what's happened to a lot of, of people who make a living thinking is as all those institutions have withered, the one thing that stepped up because of how our economy is structured and because of where the money is now uh, is plutocrats. And so there are these ideas festivals, there's the lecture circuit, um, and it's very seductive. You can get paid to give talks or you know things like TED, which don't pay you. You get an enormous amount of exposure. And I've done that and I've given TED talks and it's an extraordinary, I've given two and it's an extraordinarily powerful thing because you know, I've walked down the street in, I was in Mexico like last year and someone stopped me in the street and said, I saw your TED talk. I mean, that doesn't happen with the New York Times columns I used to write. These organizations have an amazing power of reach that is very attractive. Um, but part of what I became interested in is when more and more of us are co-opted into these spaces, what becomes difficult for us to say? What silences do we have to abide to be and play in those spaces? What does one not hear uh, discussed in those, in those gatherings? And it seemed to me that as more and more of us um, are required to pay to play, um, to, to have that kind of exposure, certain important lines of thinking were just entirely left out of the discourse. So you're 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 a fellow at the Aspen Institute, correct? Correct. So do you feel that certain lines of thinking as a fellow there are discouraged? Absolutely. And part of why, you know, this this book began as a speech that I gave in 2015. And I'd been a fellow at that time for four years. And the fellowship was this opportunity for, you know, the, the idea behind it is to take 20 or so people every year and have them read, you know, great books and um, and also read a little bit of Jack Welch, which should have, should have been a sign. Uh, but you read Plato and Aristotle and Gandhi and Martin Luther King. and Jack Welch seems like the name that doesn't fit in those five, but yeah. That's certainly what I thought, but I think others would disagree. Um, and you read all of them and you sit around this room and you discuss and you talk about how can you do more. And this whole fellowship is designed to get business people and they throw a couple people like me into every class, but it's like 16, 17, 18 business people in every class of 20. And to get them to think about how do you step up? How do you do more? How do you take on the problems of your society? And that sounds great. But it's also part of this idea that government is not good at solving problems anymore and that we need business people to solve problems. So I was in this world and in this fellowship. The fellowship itself was great. The people in my class were really nice. It was a nice exposure. We bonded. I officiated one of their weddings. But getting into that larger Aspen world made me see things that started to give me misgivings about what happens when um, the kind of entrepreneurial elite gets together to quote unquote change the world. Um, and, you know, I started to notice that we were having a lot of these discussions about bettering the world in the Coke seminar building funded by one of the Koch brothers um, who don't really necessarily seem bent on making the world a better place. Um, it was, you know, not lost on me that Monsanto and Pepsi, um, you know, helped sponsor the Aspen Ideas Festival, which seemed like a curious choice for, again, people talking incessantly about making the world better, and that Goldman Sachs sponsored our annual fellowship reunion um, in the summer. And David Rubenstein, who started this private equity fund, the Carlisle Group, and um, helped push for you know the carried interest uh, policies that have kept um, that have kept 
a lot of money out of the uh, the government that could have gone to helping people, kind of was on stage every year as a donor to this program, rebranding himself as a patriotic philanthropist, uh, solving public problems that the government couldn't solve anymore, in part because he lobbied for the government not to have as much money as it would have otherwise had. And all of this culminated in me realizing that I'd been drawn into this well-meaning program that had very scary consequences and that we were coming together in Aspen to talk about changing the world and making a difference, but we were in some ways using um, that activity to fundamentally shore up the system that was keeping um, these elites on top. And so, you know, I decided, I was asked to give a speech, which is very common. Everybody at this fellowship at some point or other has given a speech or put on a panel. We kind of all talk to each other in this thing rather than have fancy outside speakers. I was asked to give a talk to my fellow fellows one summer. And I decided to surprise everyone and, and give a talk about um, what I thought we were not talking about when we came to Aspen. And I, I talked about the Aspen consensus and the idea that, you know, you can ask people to do more good, but you're not supposed to talk about companies doing less harm. Uh, you can ask people to give back more, but you're not supposed to talk about taking less. So what, what do you mean when you say supposed to? Well, it's just not done. And I think part of, you know, the interesting thing is like, these things are not even tested that much. And so, you know, when you think about an idea like tax havens or, you know, or tax avoidance measures every company uses, double dutch with an Irish sandwich, rooting things through the Cayman Islands, blah, 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 right? Most people who look at our economy and look at the global economy will tell you, you can't get serious about fixing a lot of our problems without thinking about a problem like that. But you just don't hear talk um, in a space like that's just not part of the elite change the world discourse because that would come at the expense of elites. On the other hand, I can't tell you how much you hear about charter schools because that hurts no one in the room. Um, it's very obvious that, you know, you got to pay people more for Americans to have a decent life. And that requires, you know, regulation, minimum wage, not being able to change people's hours week to week just because demand fell in the, in the economy. Well, that's the kind of thing that would make it harder to, to run a company and would cost something to the bottom line. That kind of idea doesn't really percolate there, but you know, uh, teaching girls to code does because again, it's a good idea, it helps people, but doesn't hurt anybody. And so the problem is of course that you're teaching 100 girls to code while you know 40 million people are precariously employed. Um, the do-gooding never matches the scale on which the harm is committed. And so I started to feel like I was part of this system of, you know, what, what uh, Piketty calls the apparatus of justification, that we, here we were talking, reading these books and talking about doing good, but what we were really doing was making the case for not having to change things very fundamentally because the winners were, were not only winning but helping others win too. So why disturb them? Did this make you want to quit Aspen or drop out of this sort of system? After, I mean, after that speech, I've never been there since. Um, and it was made clear to me in certain ways that I was not necessarily welcome uh, back. Um, but you're still a fellow? Well, I mean, you're, a, you're, it's, in the fellowship is two years, so it's over after two years. It's like the mafia, um, you're a member for life? I mean, you're not, a, you're on a mailing list, you know? And, and there's no, 
you know, you're invited to the reunion every summer if you want to come to the reunion. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a space that I think, frankly, going back to what we talked about before, I think we're only going to get where we need to go if we both have the general public understand that real change doesn't happen from on high. Um, but frankly, there are, I have found, even within that Aspen world, there are absolutely undeniably, a, there's a sizable minority of the winners of our age who recognize that something is wrong, who recognize that the ways in which the society is set up are rigged, who understand that they're standing on top of a system that is indefensible. And what I found in my reporting is that a lot of them are isolated in different organizations. They're that one person at Google who actually doesn't think that Google's liberating humanity but is the lonely one at that table. And they're the person at Facebook who actually thinks that you know the drone to beam the internet to Africa is a sideshow and in fact they should be spending time thinking about privacy and surveillance and monopoly. Um, there are those people but they're isolated from each other and they don't know each other and they don't always have a language in which to take that to the table that they're in, the table that they're at. Um, and so part of what I want to do with the book while equipping outsiders to take power back from these spaces was also to equip people in these spaces, the dissidents perhaps, who I know are there, to have a certain language to find each other and speak up um, because some of, some of getting where we need to go will happen through internal reform um, of these organizations and systems. Anand Girdardas is the author of the new book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Thanks to Tova Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley and Danielle Hewitt for extra help today at Slayton, D.C. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at iChotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening.